This is Denise Crosby, Tasha Yar from Star Trek The Next Generation, and you're listening to Face the Music, an electric light orchestra song by song podcast. Engage. Episode 111 Time After Time. They grow so dim Strangers are meeting But it never ends And one day they'll remember One day they will know Time after time From far away there comes a warning sound Time after time And no one listens but it's all around And one day they'll remember One day they will know Time After Time is the fifth track on the cassette and CD versions of Sacred Messages. While you won't find this track on the 1983 vinyl single album release, you will find it as one of the B-side tracks for the 12-inch release of Rock and Roll is King. In the liner notes for the 2001 Sacred Messages remaster, Jeff Lynne wrote, Same old story about the futility of war and all that. This has a bit of early sampling and some secret messages. It was sampled by the Loons Till Death in 2000 for the song The Seven Never Dims Starport Mix. Time after time. Hi, I'm Eric Winsenson. And I'm Eric Paul Johnson. We're listening to Time After Time. Well, after a number of well, kind of frivolous pop songs on here, including that cover of Girls Just Want to Have Fun, we get down to a very serious ballad here. Girls um, <laughs> Girls just about love and loss of love, and I, but, I'm on the I, wrong album again. Are we aren't talking? I? I, are we talking about the same group, even? Well, uh, I see where you're going here now. Yeah, ah, okay. Yeah. We're talking about the apocalypse. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Oh, okay, so uh, the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's happening, and Sandy's with him, singing over and over again, time after time. I guess when in the apocalypse, that electric light orchestra starts sounding a little bit like the Buggles. <laughs> I can see that. Which, that's not a bad thing. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's a bad thing whatsoever in this particular case. This sounds like, well, yeah, I think they want to end time on a hopeful note. <laughs> so, yeah, this probably would not have been the best song to end time with. <laughs> but No. It does fit on Secret Messages, and Secret Messages is kind of everywhere in sound. So it works, and I don't know why this was kind of like a bonus track at first, because it fits in with the album. I guess it was originally planned to be on the album when they did it. It was part of the double album. I also was a little bit surprised when strings come in, because for the most part, it's one of those ones where you're going, oh, it's another Electric Light Orchestra New Wave song, and all of a sudden, oh, strings are back for a little bit. That's a bit of a welcome surprise. Mm-hmm. I really kind of liked it to tell you the truth i just I, I don't know it wouldn't have been something i would have kicked off the album originally anyway or just put as a bonus originally it's something that i would have thought should have just plain been there don't 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 wuss around eric just come on just say it don't say oh i think i like it just admit it 
Do you like it? Yes, I like it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is one of those songs that makes me think I would hate to live in a world without Jeff Lynne, or in an alternate timeline where Jeff Lynne never went into music, and he just worked in a factory and became the foreman there in a Birmingham. This is one of my most favoritedest of ELO songs. Everything about it. Since I'm such a sonically centered person, this totally grabs my ears and, well, it makes out with them. The tune of it, of course, I love, but I love the sound of it. it and the, the drums that just come in and don't let up. It's, it's really great to hear Bevan get to do something else or hear a rock song that is more than just bass, snare, bass, bass, snare, tick it, tick it, tick on the, on the cymbals, and an occasional cymbal crash. So that also makes the song interesting. Then I love the sound of it, all the stuff that's going on here. There's like background sound effects, and, and when those strings kick in, oh my, it's, it just, it's one of those things that makes my eyes roll back in my head, and I totally soundgasm over them. It's just... Oh, I so love that. And then at the end with the... See, okay. For up until last week when I looked up the song facts for this, I just pictured this as something that could have been on time that their, their spaceships wasn't around, and at the end, that's a rocket ship or a shuttle launching, possibly a ticket to the moon or something like that. And then uh, when I actually looked up the song facts and read the lyrics, oh, this is about the end of humanity. Okay, well, that's kind of a downer, although it does sort of fit how Jeff Ling sings it. He's not singing it in sort of a happy kind of futuristic way. He do, his voice does sound a bit grim, like, oh, geez. Here it comes. Well, this is the end of this. But from the first time I heard this song, and I didn't get to hear it until about a year and a half after I got the record, because I, I knew it was a bonus track on the cassette, but I wasn't, at the time anyway, wasn't going to spend money on an album I already had just to get the one song. I got $5 a week for allowance. I can't be spending all that money on records I already have, or albums I already have. Rich kids. Yeah, I know. <laughs> And certainly in 1983, I'm not affording CD, just the CDs alone, or those new CD players. So I didn't get to hear it until about November or December 1984. When I, and when I first heard it, it was like, oh my God, this is freaking awesome. And it's still freaking awesome. I could listen to this thing a thousand times a day, and I will never, ever get tired of it. It's just freaking awesome. I agree, for the most part, yeah. There's so much going on in this song. It's not something that... it. It's one of the yellow songs that you don't just want to give just one casual listen and go, eh, okay. <laughs> There's a, quite a lot going on in this, and that's why it also surprises me that it ended up kind of as a bonus type thing because most bonuses don't... There's usually something about them where there's something missing. Somebody hasn't recorded the bass track yet, or mm -hmm. the drum track is just the machine where the actual drummer was going to come in and fill it in, but never did because they decided not to put it on the album, so you said, why bother, or something like that. Or just it hasn't really received anything other than maybe a demo sound to it. 
this seems like they went a whole hog on it. Oh, yeah. Almost like it was supposed to be a centerpiece of the album. Mm. It's better yeah. than what most of what's <laughs> on here so far. And so it really confuses me some of the decisions made on this, to tell you the truth. Yeah, there are a mess of songs on this album that I do like, but I do think this is the best one that was on the single album. My guess for why it was left off of the record and put on the cassette and CD is that maybe the record companies were trying to push more for cassette sales. I don't know how much they were pushing for CD sales at the time because CDs were expensive in 1983. Because, yeah, this is the best song on the single release album. So I'm guessing, like, let's try and sell more cassettes, so let's put the best song on the cassette. I don't know if making cassettes was cheaper than making records. Definitely were. <laughs> yeah, well then that may be... Making CDs were cheaper than making records. That may entirely be the reason why. Because from things that I've read, the reason why the record company said, no, thanks for the double album, but we're releasing this as a single album. I don't want to get too deep into it here. I'll save it for the bonus tracks, but I guess it would have cost too much at the time for oil or whatever. Produce a double album, try and get more people to buy the cassette. I guess cheaper for us to make cassettes than records. So we'll put the really good song on the cassette. Around the time, this wasn't the only band that they were doing this with. Mm -hmm. Asia's second album, Alpha, had Daylight on it, which was the flip side for Don't Cry, but it was only available on the cassette and the uh, CD versions. And just like Time After Time, it's one of the better songs on the album, because <laughs> Asia's second album was, uh, well, okay. Well, not horrible, but you could tell that it was kind of, how do we have to do this? <laughs> but Daylight was good. Uh, and then, yeah, 84 and 85, I remember that too. John Mellencamp's Scarecrow had a bonus, The Kind of Fella I Am, mm -hmm. that was on cassette and CD. That was, eh, but that one wasn't as good as the rest of the songs on the album. Right. Not Responsible was on Deep Purple's Perfect Strangers album, and it was up to par with everything else, and that's a great album, of course. I'll so, have to believe you. I never really got into Deep Purple. Yeah, that was the, their reunion of their Machine Head lineup, mm. and so it was kind of a welcome return, and it was actually really, really good, surprisingly, saying uh, that most of them hated each other. <laughs> Something I didn't know here until I looked up the song facts, the... I always thought it was Jeff Lynne, just ran through a synthesizer and sped up his voice. From what I've read, that's actually his wife, Sandy. She gets a part on this album, too. Yeah, it's not Jeff Lynne, but it's Jeff Lynne's property. <laughs> that's getting cut out, I'm sure. <laughs> I, well, no, you're, you're right. Jeff Lynne wrote the song, so the song is his property. That's what you meant, yes, right? Yes, not the wife. Not, not the wife. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's make that clear. <laughs> and the little piano thing at the end. That's always stumped. Oh yeah. That's always stumped me about why that's there. I'm not complaining. As far as I'm concerned, there are no flaws in this song. I've just always kind of wondered, what what's that there for? Is that supposed to have some sort of meaning or something, or something I'm not picking up on, or or is it just there to just to put it there? Well, you have this huge big sound of everything going on, and then you got the explosion, and then you just have that piano, just nothing else, just mm -hmm. piano leading us out. So it's mainly, well, that's that's it. That's all that's left. <laughs> nothing left but a piano repeating the same notes while the bombs go off. Although I prefer to think of it as a, a star base launching ships into space because I'm that much of a sci-fi guy. 
Yeah, it's similar to the end of Doctor Strangelove, because if you ever seen Doctor Strangelove at the very end when all the nukes are going off, they're playing We'll Meet Again somewhere, yeah. sometime. Yeah, no, I love that movie. Okay, so we're going to go on to uh, She-Bop. <laughs> oh, <just kidding. laughs> you can go on to She-Bop. I, I think I'll move on to Four Little Diamonds. Got something to say about time after time? Then call the telephone line voicemail. 623-850-3375. Call now. It's time for a great line from ELO from this week's song. What's my line? From far away comes a warning sound. And no one listens. But it's all around. And one day they'll remember. One day they will know. Okay, you hosers. It's that Donna guy, and here's my take rant opinionated crap on my feelings on Time After Time, the song and track. And if your ears hurt during or after this thing, don't blame me, blame Eric. It was his idea. With Jeff going all gonzo digital with this album, this is the most you'll ever hear from Bev Bevan, I'm afraid. And this is quite the blowout for him. Not just for the whacked out drumming, but I suspect his frog voice during the chorus. Much like the B-sides from the first two time singles, this bonus track on the cassette was quite the trip for me especially given the fact that I wouldn't have a CD player until four or five years down the road. Even though I already have the vinyl, getting this tape just for the bonus track was a badge of honor for this fanboy. As far as the song itself, it's the most serious or dramatic Jeff has ever done outside the first three albums. I'm sure the topic of living with bombs in your backyard placed by your landlord and living next door to neighbors with more bombs in their backyard only aimed at you by their landlord. Yeah, you tend to keep a freaking eye on that crappy situation. Though I do remember Frank Zappa explaining that the reason uh, the World War III meltdown hasn't happened yet is that there's too much real estate involved. So I suspect that the landlords don't really hate each other, they're just raging alcoholics too drunk to spit on each other. Re- Regardless, this recording is the most dense layered production I've heard thus far. Reversed vocals skipping in and out of within seconds of each other, which is bonus credit for tight editing. Keyboard crescendos spewing left and right, and up oh, there's Lewis Clark punching in those strings. The topic may sound dated and corny to our ears, especially if you are American. The production is impressive nevertheless. Hearing this layered madness on my puny Walkman and in its puny headphones was indeed madness to the point that I had to wait till I had to play it on my puny stereo system to get everything in. Yeah, headache inducing with a smile on my face. Strangers are meeting, but it never ends. Again, another reference to the song on this album, Stranger. From far away there comes a warning sound, and no one listens but it's all around. And one day they'll remember, one day they will know. This album, Secret Messages, is the warning sound, but nobody's gonna know it just yet. The warning? This is the last ELO album.
The Beauty of the Earth from Way Up High, a reference to Mission, a world record, from their 1976 album, A New World Record. The title of the song, Time After Time. The previous album was titled Time. Secret Messages is the album After Time. The Time After Time. Notice the song isn't called Time After Time After Time, meaning there will be no more albums after Secret Messages. The Secret Messages are right there in front of your faces, people. You're a really weird man, aren't you? Hey, this is Troy White. Here are my comments for Time After Time. Time after time after time after time after... Oh, sorry. Wrong song. Yeah, man, you got your Ben Calder in my ELO face the music, dude. Oh, yeah, well, you got your ELO face the music in my Ben Calder, dude. And it sucks. This has been a thought from Troy. What the hell was that? Like it? Hate it? What does Madeline think? I did like the song. I danced to it and I recorded it the second time so my mom could see it. And she's going to probably be amazed how good I am of a dancer. Toodaloo, coochie coo. I love all you guys. Wow, she liked it. End of part one. Intermission. End of intermission. Two. Here's something special for the expanded episode. We're going to talk about my song. I guess it's our song. The Seven Never yeah. Dims. I did an album in 1991 called The Seven Never Dims. And on my next album, I already had a title More for it. More of an EP. What's that? More of an EP. I would call The Seven Never Dims. Just, just playing the songs back in reverse order does not exactly no, make no, no, it no, an no. album. <laughs> that, that was Pastor of Muppets, which was the next right. album. The Seven Never Dims, I'd call that a full album. It was about 45 yes. minutes. So on my next album, all right, I see where you're coming from. On my next EP, Pastor of Muppets, I wanted to have a song called The Seven Never Dims. I didn't really know how to write it or what the lyrics would be. All I knew was that I wanted it to sound something like the title. Words that sound like, oh, these have deep meanings into the secrets and the mysteries of life when really it's just means nothing because there were people who, when they saw the title of the album, The Seven Never Dims, they were like, oh, yeah, that's really deep. You know about the meanings behind the number seven, right? It's very, very introspective there, The Seven Never Dims. Well, the real story behind the title is that I had a friend who lived in San Francisco, and she came out for a month visit to Phoenix in 1990, 91. She drove her car from San Francisco to Phoenix, and her car was having a lot of trouble. It would stall out and she'd have to wait for things to get themselves back together before she could drive on a little further. And that night, she picked up me and a friend and we went to a bar, which was the first time I've ever been to a club. And no, I did not like it. Not my idea of a good time, but the other option was sitting at home by myself, wallowing in depression at my parents' house. So. Yeah, sure. I'll go to a bar with my friends. And as we were driving, she said, Hey, the car's running pretty good tonight. And you could tell when the car was about to die because the last number on the clock would start to fade. So when she said the car was running pretty good tonight, I looked at the clock 
It was 9.37, and I said, Yeah, the seven never dims. And that's where it came from. No deep meaning. It's just the car wasn't falling apart. So that's kind of the thing that I wanted lyrically for the seven never dims. Things that sounded like they had deep meaning, but really nothing at all. So in 1992, after being jilted out of my first place comic strip award at the College Voice Banquet, was there with Eric, because he was also on the College Voice, and his girlfriend Karen. And after the banquet, we went to Denny's. Not just any Denny's. No, not just... The Denny's. Yeah, yeah, the gay Denny's. Yeah, and that's not a derogatory term. It's basically that part of Phoenix, even now, has a lot of gay bars and lesbian bars. And, well, after they close, there's some place you got to go. And Denny's typically open 24 hours, and that's the closest Denny's. Yep. So, yeah, we we talking, and the Seven Never Dims came up, and I explained what I wanted from the song, but I didn't know exactly how to write it. And Eric just pulls a napkin. Karen takes a pen out of her purse, and Eric just starts writing right off, just right away. And he says, here you go. And I still have that napkin somewhere. And he wrote out the lyrics for the Seven Never Dims in just a couple of minutes, which made me wonder... Did he really just do this, or is he swiping somebody else's lyrics, and I'm too dense to know who he's swiping from? One of his weird, obscure groups. No, no swiping. (laughs) I am impressed, because you just banged that thing out in no time. That's what she said. That's (laughs) that's probably why Karen didn't... Didn't stick around for too many more years, yes. A few months later, I was working on the song on my guitar, and I came up with different words for the chorus than he did, and I thought... I like that one better, so I'll use that. And so that's how we wrote the words to the song. Eric wrote the verses, I wrote the chorus, and I wrote the music. As for the inspiration for the music part of it, some of this is going to sound, wow, that's obviously the early 90s. Um, part of it came from <laughs> Jesus Jones. There's some inspiration from The Police's 1986, Don't Stand So Close. But the overall inspiration, the sound that I was going for for this was early 80s ELO, especially time after time. That was the big thing that I was going for. And there's the drum beat for this. I saw Melissa Etheridge do a song on Letterman. I was thinking, oh, I see that hip-hop beat could kind of work for a rock thing. I will do that. And I wish I hadn't. (laughs) It's like five years later, I was thinking, someday when I remake the song, I got to do a completely different drum track. Did you do that in the studio, or did you sample that? Was it the Sarah McLachlan record, or...? Well, here's the story about the recording part of it. Back then, there was no audacity. And I did not have access to a recording studio. Back then, I recorded my albums using two dual tape decks and some recording tricks and cassettes. However, when I found out that my community college had a studio recording class, and that they had an actual studio where you could record your songs with 16 tracks and overdubbing and all these kind of special effects, I took the class. And I did three songs for that class, and one of them was The Seven Never Dims, obviously. The original plan was that I would yoink that drum track from Sinead O'Connor's 
Oh, Sinead O'Connor. Okay. I spit upon your grave? What is it? It's something grave. It's from her second album. can't believe I can't remember the title right now. When I tried to explain what I wanted for the drums for the song to the teacher slash engineer, he said, okay. And he got on his drum machine and he hit his little drum pads and just looped it. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't like it in there because it feels so much to me like what happens with older musicians who are desperate to try and stay current. Personally, I liked it. It was kind of... Off-kilter, I should say. <laughs> it was this weird thing that meshed with the song, mm-hmm. but then sounded a little bit off. And so I kind of liked that weird feeling. It didn't make it sound like it was something synthesized. With your acoustic guitar playing and everything, with that mixed in, mm-hmm. it sounded more experimental than probably it was. So I really thought that that actually added something to it. You've instantly turned me around on the song. <laughs> At least the drum part of it. Since I'm not really into hip-hop, I always kind of saw it as like the old guy trying to stay current. Hey, look, I put a hip-hop thing in one of my songs. Oh. Yeah, I didn't I didn't look at it as hip-hop beat. I just looked at it as this almost more of a Kraftwerk type hmm. drum loop. Typically, when you hear that type of drum loop, you want, you're expecting something like Kraftwerk where they come in or... Kraftwerk, I know, I pronounce it like an American, <laughs> where they come in and, and start doing their repetitive little bleeps and bloops and everything, mm-hmm. and then start in for showroom dummies. But it's, it sounds like that, but then all of a sudden you come in with the acoustic <laughs> instead of what's expected there. And it really, really works and really drives the song a lot more than it would be if you just had somebody back there <laughs> for the whole thing. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, good. Because I was going for a weird, overblown... And when you did the remix, that drum beat really helped, too. When you added in the swoops and everything in there, it actually opened it up a little bit more, too. When you hear the original version and then you hear the remix, the original version sounds kind of empty. And that's because I had a limited time. There were other students in the class that also had recording time, and we only had it for, you know, a semester, and a class only meets two days a week. So you had four days to bang out your songs, and I had three songs. Fortunately, two of them were really simple, so it didn't take as much recording work as the Seven Never Dims. So, yeah, you totally turned me around on this. I was like, you know what? He's right. It does give it sort of a weird, unearthly, non-meshing yet meshing. Holy crap, I friggin' copied Jeff Lynne better than I thought. The way Jeff Lynne can take two different kinds of musics and work them together, like just last week with Take Me On and On, where he brings in rockabilly into New Age and makes them work. Yeah, as for the remix, I did a lot of sampling of different ELO songs. There's also a futzed with... I kind of warped it around the opening to, I think it's Without Someone. It's the first or second song on side two of Balance of Power. Almost kind of sounds like a Klingon ship swooping in. At least that's in my head. And I also got out my Star Wars toys. Some of the ships that you hear going by, that was the Millennium Falcon, actually yoinked from the movie when they're flying to Yavin. 
But also there's, uh, I got my little X-Wing and you push down R2-D2's head and it makes X-Wing swooping by sounds. So that's the kind of stuff in the, rem ma in the remix. And the big orchestra end, that was actually taken from the Moody Blues, their 1989 version of Questions. There's a video you can see of it on YouTube where I took all kinds of Prelinger archive 60s kind of sci-fi footage and edited it all together. I just, my mind's totally blown that you... T <laughs> I don't regret putting in the hip-hop beat now, now that it actually worked out. Yeah. Yeah, and when I just remember when I wrote it, about the only thing I yoinked from anywhere was the pantyhose <laughs> on the bathroom floor of life or whatever. There was some sitcom where somebody was doing bad poetry. <laughs> and use that line. That was, I think, the only thing that I took from anywhere else. I can't even remember the sitcom. It probably wasn't even one that was on very long. But they were doing some parody of beat poetry mm -hmm. and throughout that line. So I, that's about the only thing that I yoinked from anywhere else. <laughs> Everything else, I just, it was but just a lot of puns and uh, <laughs> also the fact you've done a song called I Gave My Sister a Big Heat Blister. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I and did. That you didn't, uh, <laughs> and that, and that, uh, yeah, you weren't a big fan of your sister, so I figured, yeah, I'd throw that in there because that <laughs> has something to do with you. And I think the reason we did the Seven Never Dims also is because on your album, The Seven Never Dims, you had a song called Jeff Quinlan Loves You. Yes, which was the time. And that had been your previous album was Jeff Quinlan Loves You, where you actually stole uh, Everybody Wants You. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, kind of, yeah. And uh, I'm sitting there going, when when the hell did you ever listen to Billy Squire? I, what are you talking <laughs> about? I was 12 and 13 when Billy Squire was a big deal. That's, and I lived in true. Phoenix. You can't get away from Billy Squire when you're that age well, in Phoenix. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a little joke I had uh, carried through for the last three of the Loons Till Death albums. They all, yeah. the song that you were supposed to do another album after that, and I remember I did write a song for you called Pastor of Muppets, and I have no idea where that went to. I don't know. I never. I, know, I don't have it. I never got it. I did write the chorus for Pastor of Muppets, which was supposed to go along the same lines as The Seven Never Dims, as being an all-powerful, all-knowing being, just spitting out gibberish. I remember the chorus yeah. that I wrote was, pull this from my memory, because I haven't seen it in like more than 25 years. I am the pastor of Muppets. I am the all-powerful Oz. I am the pastor of Muppets. No, I'm not Santa Claus. I remember something like that. I think you gave me the chorus, mm -hmm. and then I wrote the verses for you, but wherever they went to, I have no idea. Yeah. I, sent them, I sent them to you over email. <laughs> oh. Well, forum mail. <laughs> oh. At Glendale Community College, probably back in 94, 93. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I have absolutely no idea what, what happened to that because it wasn't anything I saved either. Yeah, and the only thing I remember about Pastor Muppets that was planned was I was going to sample the end strings bit from uh, Glass Onion by the Beatles and kind of speed it up a bit and warp it around a little to make it all psychedelic, whirly-ish kind of sounding. I don't know, maybe someday Pastor of Muppets, the song, will come true. But for now, here's the Seven Never Dims. It's the Starport remix with all the ELO references. Now, here comes the music.
through for this week's show, but uh, there's always another week, I hope. 
Taste the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast, is a production of Radio Trolla Entertainment, Assorted Deli Meets Amalgamated. You can contact us by voicemail at 623-850-3375 or email us at eloftmpodcast at gmail.com. Keep up to date on the show by joining our Facebook group and spread the word by sharing the link or giving us a quick rating on iTunes. You can financially support the podcast at patreon.com slash ELO pod. Next week, episode 112, Four Little Diamonds. Time after time.